This is Lindsay Jacobs, your host, and welcome back to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Each episode, I have a guest and we explore topics that are relevant to the field of Jero Psychology. For today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Patricia Bamonte, a licensed clinical geropsychologist who specializes in psychotherapy with older adults and caregivers in an outpatient setting. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the last episode, if you have any interest in working in an outpatient geriatric mental health clinic, or interest in learning about the roles and responsibilities of a psychologist in that clinic, I would recommend that you go back and listen to that episode where Dr. Patricia Bamondi shares with me what her experience has been like. As a reminder, Dr. Bamondi earned a degree in clinical psychology with a focus in geropsychology at West Virginia University, and then she did her internship and fellowship in geropsychology at the Milwaukee VA Medical Center. She currently serves as the secretary for the Council of Professional Geropsychology Training Programs, COGTIP for short, and she's also the social media overseer for the Society of Clinical Geropsychology, or APA's Division 12, Section 2. Dr. Bamonte is an active supervisor for our future geropsychologists, providing clinical supervision to trainees at the practicum, internship, and fellowship levels. In today's episode, you might notice that Patty and I refer to therapy clients as patients, older adults, or veterans. We use the term veteran quite naturally as we both have trained and have worked in the VA. But I do want to note, however, that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not necessarily represent the views of the U.S. government or the Department of Veterans Affairs. Thank you for coming on again, Patty. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Um, So today we are going to be talking about some issues that might come up when you're working in an outpatient setting, working with older adults. And I should specify that we're going to be focusing primarily on doing interventions with older adults and some things that might come up and how you might handle these. So why don't we just start off with the very first question. Uh, So when working with older adults in an outpatient mental health setting, I have come across this issue before where your patient might start to view you as, because of your age, you're much younger um, than the person that you're working with, your patient, that they might start to view you as a person in their life, like a granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, Patty, have you come across this issue before? And I'm wondering if you have, how you've addressed this. Yeah, I have come across this um, issue before. I th- I think that one of the things that I try to do is take my understanding of the patient to get a a better perspective on why they may be having this type of interaction um, and dynamic with me. Um, And this usually comes from a place of knowing that I'm connecting with with them in a way that must be making one of them feel comfortable and bonded with me. And so I don't think this is a negative thing for any, any reason, but it speaks to needing to have a a good relationship and a solid trust in that relationship to be able to process these things if it's needed and to reassert um, professional roles and boundaries if it seems like boundaries are being crossed. 
I think that for some patients, this is how they are relating because this is unique to them too. It's probably unusual for them to be sitting in a room with somebody much, much younger than them that could be the age of their granddaughter and talking to them about a, you know, a trauma in their life or talking to them about feeling hopeless. And so I think approaching it from a, a stance of empathy and validation is important and understanding that they may be struggling with how to relate to you. Um, and this may be the way that they are trying to do it. And so I like to have, if it does become um, an issue or a clinical concern in terms of um, boundary crossing or there needing to be a reassertion of roles, I tend to to process that with the patient. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking too, um, at least in my experience, it's been helpful to process an issue like this in that you're you're demonstrating good communication Mm -hmm. skills, being uh, open, recognizing one's thoughts or one's emotions Mm -hmm. and how they're relating to another person, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of times what we're focusing Mm -hmm. on in therapy, right? Mm -hmm. So using this as, as sort of an example to play that out. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I found that when I have processed um, relationship dynamics with patients, it it does make the relationship stronger and it builds insight um, for the patient as well. And it shows that um, there's a level of self-disclosure that that comes when you do need to process these things because part of what the clinician does is has to process with the patient how they are feeling in the room with the patient when these things happen. And so I see this as building the therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, fostering good modeling of communication skills and being mindful of emotions and feelings as they arise. Yeah. Have you ever had the experience where um, maybe you're just starting out doing therapy with someone and uh, the your patient expresses that or or you get the sense that they're sort of guarded mm-hmm. and um, not really engaging in treatment um, as thir- as openly as you feel like is necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the issue comes up that it's because of your age and maybe they have these beliefs that, you know, a younger person isn't able to help them because they don't know their life history or they mm-hmm. haven't been through the same sort of experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that this this could also come up in in any other setting, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, trauma. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. working with veterans and younger veterans too. I imagine it comes up, you know, um, veterans thinking that uh, a, a therapist might not be able to help them because they haven't experienced trauma mm-hmm. like they mm-hmm. have. But um, have has that happened to you before? It has, um, and you know, one of the things that I try to be cognizant of is I'm not going to to argue the point with the patient. I'm going to try to understand what their fears are, what their anxieties are. What's the message underneath that? And it may be that I'm scared that you'll judge me. I'm scared you won't understand me. Um, And if you can process what's coming up for the for the individual and then process how that feels between the two of you and between that relationship, it can break down some of those walls and also time can. Mm -hmm. So I have patients who may have a guard up for very good reasons because 
they've learned that they need to have a guard up for self-protection. And sometimes it just takes time. And honestly, sometimes take silence in the room with the patient uh, to begin opening up enough space for them to break down that wall. And so I think as a clinician who's been working now a couple of years, one of the things I've learned is how to use silence much more effectively, where when I was a younger therapist, I would I would fill the space with questions. Yeah, I, as you were saying, talking about silence, as you <clears throat> brought that up, I, that was been my experience too. When I was first learning how to provide therapy, I too felt like there needed to be words in the room at all times, and I think a lot of it was fueled by my anxiety. Yes. <laughs> And worry, you know, that I wasn't doing what I needed to be doing or, you know, my own thoughts about, you know, may, my client may think that I'm not doing therapy correctly or providing it correctly if if there's silence. Um, and uh, I, too, have been able to really learn how to use silence effectively in the room. And it really is mm-hmm. such a great tool mm-hmm. and needed a lot of time, like you said, for specific situations mm-hmm. like that. And I'm also thinking, too, that silence is needed for people just to be able to process their thoughts mm-hmm. and, you know, come up with a, a response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes me think of an, another uh, sort of developmental growth point that I've had is also just knowing that, recognizing that the agenda that I come in with the room may not be the the patient's agenda. And sometimes I think we can get really stuck on, I need to help this patient in this way. And that may not be the path that 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 person's on or what they desire. And so I think that this is important. You know, we need to do our due diligence as providers to provide options, provide a safe space, but we can't put our agenda onto the the patient. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to work collaboratively. And sometimes that means letting go of the agenda you had for the patient that session. Yeah. Um, So in working with older adults, there is likely to come a time when you're working with someone who has some cognitive impairment. I'm curious, in your work with older adults who have some cognitive impairment, how do you know when therapy Mm -hmm. is appropriate for that Mm -hmm. person or what approach to use? Mm -hmm. Well, a good starting point is if there's been testing on the patient to get to characterize the level of cognitive impairment and diagnosis. Um, And so for patients who have had no testing, that would be a, a starting point doing a cognitive screening on them. But with patients with a known diagnosis of dementia, um, that's informative, but it doesn't really tell us just that label, how much we can do with them. Um, so a good starting point for me is thinking about people individuals who have mild cognitive impairment. So these are people who we usually can still use our typical empirically supported treatments, but we might want to tailor it in some ways or modify. So we may have more structure in place, more repetition, lengthening lengthening the treatment duration, having more um, visual visualization of skills, um, using a whiteboard or paper, sending them home with more reminders and cues and prompts, using an audio recorder, those types of things. I've used things like memory books with patients, binders where they can put all their materials. And for those with executive dysfunction, which is characterized by um, sort of difficulty going from one test to another, diff- difficulty with planning and organization, having those types of materials like a memory binder or a local, uh, location where they can say, okay, this was this is what I was going to work on from week to week can be really helpful. And mm-hmm. you can use a lot of those same skills in the session when you're working with the, yeah. the individual with 
individuals with dementia, again, it depends on the type of dementia they have. So vascular dementia tends to have a less severe progressive course in the sense that they often can have less severe memory impairment. It's characterized by more often executive dysfunction. And so for those patients, it may look very similar to how it would work with somebody with mild cognitive impairment using more visualization and cues. For somebody with um, like Alzheimer's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies, um, frontal temporal dementia, we often at that point need to use a caregiver intervention to really help on behavior management and environmental modifications. Um, so these are um, things like helping the patient establish a routine during the daytime, helping them engage in pleasurable activities and exercise, and then helping with caregiver burnout and focusing on caregiver stress. Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out to me what you were saying was um, memory books, because this mm-hmm. is really specific, I think, to the population mm-hmm. that we work with. I'm curious, you know, maybe even getting down to the nitty gritty, the detail, how you do that in session with the patient. Yeah, so that's a good question. So usually I will introduce them to the concept of a memory book and what the purpose serves, what purpose it serves. So it's a it's a place where they can start collecting their materials. They can organize it by session to session, um, whatever makes sense for that particular patient. And it helps them, um, one, have a place where you're starting to record the skills they're learning. So I might, for example, have a page that's very simply typed out like, a four-step deep breathing exercise. And maybe at the top, it's like, use this when I'm feeling anxious at nighttime. And so they could keep that with them and open up that binder that they keep by their bed and look at that and help them cue them to use that exercise. I've also... Um, worked with caregivers where I show the caregivers this is where this exercise is so that they can work with the veteran who the the patient who may get up at night and not be able to fall back to sleep and help them um, decrease their anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm working on problem solving skills with the patient, I may have um, a couple of pages focused on problem solving steps and what problem we focused on today and assignment for the next week. And so it depends on what you're working on with the patient, but it's really a repository. It provides structures, cueings, and prompts for the patient. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one uh, one thing that I've done with memory books too is I like to use patients' own language. Mm-hmm. And so you can collaboratively put together the sheets that you yes. put into the memory book. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great um, point. I try to do that as well. Yeah. All right. So the next question, or actually I'll present this myth, is that older adults can't benefit from psychotherapy. What's been your experience? Well, that's definitely a myth. They they can, and the research has demonstrated that fully, that um, older adults can um benefit from treatment as much as adults of any age. And I think where this comes up is I I tend to hear this from older adults themselves. Mm, yeah. And this can be a barrier to engagement in treatment and to adherence. And so the way that I like to address that is sometimes I use Socratic dialogue. So I might have them look at that belief in different ways, different perspectives, or test out that belief by using some skills between sessions. You may also, um, if you were doing more of an ACT approach, you could address that question by using um, creative hopelessness or looking at the cost of their current um, status quo mm-hmm. and take the approach of let's try something different because what's what you're doing now 
isn't effective for you. Mm -hmm. And so um, depending on what type of mode of therapy you're doing, there are different ways to handle that question. And I think being patient and um, giving the patient the opportunity to begin testing out to dis, um, disrupt this belief and dispute this belief can be useful. Yeah. And with ACT, I'm also thinking too, teaching them to recognize the thoughts that their mind creates, recognizing it just as that, as a thought mm-hmm. so that they can start to get some distance from it, diffuse mm-hmm. from it. And this also you know, brings up the topic, and we probably don't have time to really go into all of it today, but um, just thinking about how ageism comes up in general in the therapy room it does it it can it's it's toxic really um and it's it's internalized ageism but ageism still comes up as providers um where we may have a patient who you start you start paralleling their frustration Mm -hmm. um or their um unwillingness um and so i think being vigilant to your own biases is important and then helping the patient guiding the patient to challenge their um, internalized ageism if it's present is critical as well. Yeah. And I I use ACT a lot. And I'm thinking from just from an ACT framework, thinking of ageism, you know, bringing, talking about it in the therapy room, sort of presenting it as this, you know, these are beliefs or things that people say over time. That doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean that they're true. Mm-hmm. These are just thoughts or opinions mm-hmm. or actually evaluations mm-hmm. and judgments that people make. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in in our work, we will see patients who have some history of trauma. Yes. And at least, you know, years ago, the idea was that older adults would not be able to handle trauma-focused treatment. I think that, you know, we're starting to understand that they can. We're still needing more research in this area. Mm -hmm. But what's been your experience in working with older adults who are presenting with some trauma Um, Mm -hmm. trauma-related symptoms, or when do you know when it's appropriate to use a trauma-focused treatment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So yes, older adults can benefit and do benefit from trauma interventions. Um, The ones that I use are prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. I've used them with older adults with good effectiveness. In terms of when to do a trauma-focused treatment, that's a big question. I think that one, does the veteran have a diagnosis that's tied to a trauma that would warrant that? And does the patient want to work on the trauma? And so I think I going into these interventions, the patient needs to be informed of what the interventions entail, the duration, the expectations, um, the the outcomes and have buy-in to starting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and s- sometimes that entails some psychoeducation upfront about the role of avoidance, because that's pretty common across all ages that there can be avoidance to want to begin these types of treatments. But if I have a patient who has PTSD, they have a trauma history, and they are willing to st- to want to start down this path, then I say go for it. Um, There are some patients for whom they may have had a trauma, but they don't have trauma-related symptoms. And for them, I wouldn't do a trauma-focused therapy. Mm -hmm. And then for some patients, they have clinically significant um, PTSD symptoms, but they may not want to to address the trauma. And for those individuals, I will 
um, use CBT or um, acceptance and commitment therapy to work on coping and work on um, decreasing distress. Mm-hmm. I like what you were saying earlier about how, um, you know, one thing that you might start to do whenever you're working with a patient who has some trauma related symptoms is to provide just some basic psychoeducation mm-hmm. about how uh, PTSD, for example, how it develops and how it's perpetuated. Yeah, you know, I think in any sort of uh, when you're providing psychotherapy, um, it's important to share with the patient sort of your conceptualization, I think, of how Mm -hmm. their symptoms came to be or how they are continuing over time and really informing them of the treatments that are available so that they can make an informed decision about which path to choose. Exactly. And I think that's so important for any therapy, particularly if you're thinking about starting a trauma-focused therapy because Mm -hmm. it it's it's a lot of work and it's a lot of commitment for the for the patient but one of the things that i think like you said is helpful is helping them understand how avoidance functions to maintain PTSD symptoms. And I think once that education is provided, it often produces the buy-in um, because the patient under things start making sense to mm-hmm. them of why we would do these types of therapies. Yeah. And what you were saying just a second ago about you know, the trauma-focused treatment really is a lot of work. And I do, I like you were saying, it is really important to share that up front yes. because it takes a lot of mental, emotional mm-hmm. energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my experience, you know, when you first start a trauma-focused treatment, the symptoms are going to increase mm-hmm. initially, but they will eventually decrease. Yeah. Or, or that's been my experience. Yeah, I think pa- like patients commonly report that, and I I think that makes sense. And I, I think it's also documented in the literature because we're starting to break down the avoidance mechanisms that they've been using for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, part of the treatment is whether you're doing PE and you're thinking about habituation, or you're doing CPT and you're thinking about um, using, um, challenging their beliefs and looking at the context in which their trauma occurred. Both of them operate in the same way to to decrease avoidance, to Mm -hmm. treat the symptoms. So Mm -hmm. in working with older adults, providing intervention, there are times where we are working with someone who's never had therapy before. Mm -hmm. When you're meeting with someone for the first time and providing therapy to someone who's never had therapy before, what approach do you take? Mm -hmm. Are there certain things that you share up front when you're Mm -hmm. first establishing that relationship and sort of orienting them to what treatment is? Definitely. I find it helpful to provide orientation to who I am, what I do, and what this clinic does. And so some basic just foundation understanding of um, what services we provide, what what do I do, what do I not do. So oftentimes patients may think I'm a psychiatrist and I have to clarify, you know, this is what I do, this is what it looks like. And then, and then begin to provide a context for what this initial session may look like for them because they may be nervous or feel uncomfortable just being in a room with a mental health provider. And talking to them about some of the questions that I might ask them today, letting them know that the first session may be more question heavy, and then making sure I also go over things like limits of confidentiality as well. So it's a little bit of providing orientation, providing orientation to the specific setting and then to therapy itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that within that, you, you're you wanting to use good interpersonal skills. So you're wanting to be welcoming, warm, validating, use good empathy, um, because patients may be uncomfortable. 
now there's a handful of patients they've never been to therapy and they walk in and they're they're fine. Um, so I think it 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 just varies on on the individual that's coming to your office. Yeah. Um, and this makes me think of some experiences that I've had where you were mentioning sort of providing education on who you are and mm-hmm. who works in the clinic. I've even you know gone so far as to write down because uh, patients that we work with often you know have a lot of providers that um, provide care to them and specialty health clinics uh, maybe they have a psychiatrist and so you know just writing down the different disciplines mm-hmm. and beside each who their provider is within that discipline and what the purpose of the how that discipline functions or the the role that they play mm-hmm. in that veteran's health that can be helpful too yeah yeah well, I think those are all the questions that I had today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was so much fun. That's all for today's episode on the Jero Psychology Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and visit the website at www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in hearing specific topics, please feel free to leave me a comment on the website. Follow me on Twitter at the Jero Podcast.